All right. Hi, and welcome to Red Reviews, number 14, uh, with Justin Clark. How's it going? It's going all right, Corey. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Good, good, good. It's, uh, it's starting to get cooler here in, in yeah, Indiana. Same here. So today was kind of a cold and rainy day. It wasn't too bad. Um, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to the colder weather, getting out the jackets. Bit you know, of a change. Bit of a least. change, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've realized in almost every one of these that you always see me in a black t-shirt because this is what I, it's kind of, I always have black <laughs> undershirts on. So I'll wear a button down shirt at work and then I just take that off when I get home. So I've realized ah. in the thumbnails for these, I always look the same, which is fine. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, that's I, all right. It's all right. So, um, so last time we discussed, um, the communist manifesto yep. and tonight we'll be sort of building on. Sort of the rest of this year, with the exception of a couple titles, we're going to be focusing on um, the history of, you know, key Marxist thinkers and then, you know, key societies that are related to Marxism. So we're 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 going to be getting tonight a, a sort of a series of two episodes where this one and the next one where we'll be talking about um, Lenin and the Soviet Union and the beginnings of the Soviet Union. And then later on, at the end of the year, we're going to be talking about Mao and the sort of the beginning of, of um, communist China. So, um, which is super exciting to kind of talk about these um, yeah, that's topics cool. and try to um, get a uh, as best as we can a sort of a balanced portrait of these things and try not to either too you know get too much into hagiography hey or you know championing versus also like not also telling you everything is horrible. So, right. Um, right. So with that in mind, um, tonight we'll be talking about one of the most important works of 20th century Marxism, probably one of, I mean, arguably one of the most important works of Marxism period, which is The State and Revolution by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, um, published in 1918, written in the fall of 1917, about August, September of 1917, um, as a China Mieville's book, October Notes, and that's the book we'll talk about next time. Actually, next time we'll be talking about two books. Um, okay. Next time will be the first one we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about two books. Um, but um, in uh, China Mieville's book, October, which is all about the history of the, the beginning of the, the history of the Russian Revolution, he talks about how most of this was written, um, you know, on, you know, loose leaf paper, on tree stumps, while um, Lenin was... <laughs> abroad um sort of waiting because he traveled a lot in between 1917 and uh, okay. back and forth in and out of russia um both to relax but also to get heat off of him from authorities and so on so so most of this was written i think in like september or uh, august or september of 1917 but wasn't published until after the revolution um imagine that you write a book on a subject and then you have to give up writing the book on the subject to actively be involved in the subject you're writing about, which is exactly what right. happened with Lenin, which is quite cool. He literally had to give up working on a book about revolution to carry out one, which is kind of neat. Yeah. And he kind of notes that at the end of this book in a postscript. Okay. Um, so the book itself, I'm going to try to get to my, um, the version that I will be reading from this evening. There are many different versions of this book. Um, but the version I will be reading from this evening is from the Selected Works of Lenin, published in the 1970s um, okay. in three volumes uh, by Progress Publishers, which is the publishing house of the Soviet Union. Um, cool. And so 
The subtitle of the book is the Marxist, the Marxist theory of the state and the tasks of the proletariat and revolution. So while much like with the communist manifesto, this is a short work, but it's an incredibly important work that outlines the importance of revolution and its relationship to the state, hence the title. Um, what mm -hmm. Lenin is trying to do here in this book is refute a lot of the sort of what he calls the sort of distortions of Marxism, meaning those who were a part of the broader sort of uh, uh, Marxist movement that existed within Europe in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, okay. So for context, Karl Marx died in 1883 and Friedrich Engels died in 1895. So there was like a period of 20 years where there was sort of a figuring out of who was going to be and who were the sort of heirs to what Marx and Engels were doing. Right. And on one side of that were people who were part of what was called the Second International. Um, and the leader of that was a guy named Karl Kautsky. Okay. And Karl Kautsky was a German uh, socialist Marxist who essentially adopted reformism. Um, and moved away from some of the sort of revolutionary okay. principles and aspects of Marxism. And he is somebody who gets the particular ire of Lenin. Um, Karl Kautsky would be one of these people that almost no one would remember from this era had right. it not been for Lenin talking so much shit about him. Um, <laughs> and so to, to kind of like give your listeners a sense of what reading Lenin is like, it's very fun. Uh, reading Lenin is extremely fun because his writing is both very extremely clear. He's one of the best popular, he's one of the best writers who helps break down Marxist concepts and makes them clear and easy for you to understand. He's very good at that. Cool. The other thing is, is he's really good at shit talking people. So <laughs> if, if Lenin were around today, he would certainly be on Twitter because this, the, the state revolution very much reads like him quote tweeting somebody saying something dumb and then him putting a tweet thread about why it's wrong. Um, <laughs> right. And so there's a lot of that in there. So the other thing that's important to understand too about this era is that the Russian revolution happens within the backdrop of world war one. World war one happens from 1914 to 1919. The United right. States gets involved in 1917, um, which is when the Russian revolution happens and it happens largely as a result of World War I. World War I was the sort of galvanizing event that made people realize the sort of the, the futility of the Romanov um, dynasty who had ruled Russia for like three centuries. And so the – and we'll get into this definitely more next time when we talk about the actual Russian Revolution proper. Right, right. But what Lenin is doing in this book is he's articulating the values – and the principles and the sort of strategies for what a, a, a revolution of socialism would actually look like. Cool. Um, and so let's sort of get into it because there's a lot of great stuff here. You know, we'll try to cover as much as we can in an hour. But what's really important to understand is that, you know, right at the very beginning in chapter one, Lenin writes, today... The bourgeoisie and the opportunists within the labor movement concur 
In this doctoring of Marxism, they omit, obscure, or distort the revolutionary side of this theory, its revolutionary soul. And that's kind of the theme of the book, where he's going through very explicitly and articulating to people why the sort of conciliatory attitude that other Marxists take about the state is wrong. Right. And so let's think about how this book is structured. Largely, it's a commentary on other work. So what it is, is it's Lenin basically providing you example after example after example of Marx and Engels explicitly calling for revolution um, <laughs> and explaining why this is their original intent versus what the people say. So at the time, the Marxist movement in Europe, especially in Germany, had become more reformist. So and like uh, a democratic socialists or social Democrats type of situation. Yes. They sort of became democratic socialists slash social Democrats. They had sort of abandoned the idea of Marxism proper, which is to um, completely destroy the state as it is developed by the bourgeoisie. So um, when we think about what the state is, there are many conceptions of what people think of as the state, but the way that the state is defined by Marxism and Marx's and Engels' writing as well as Lenin's writing is that the state is a organized and centralized um, authority of power for one class over another. Mm -hmm. So in most societies, we live in a bourgeois state. In almost all societies, there's a bourgeois state where the state exists yeah. and uses the centralized force of the state. It uses its centralized force to enforce the existing class divisions. So it, it, it basically protects the minority at the expense of the majority. Yeah. And yeah. what the sort of reformist Marxist argued for was, well, if we could just get in power, we could then reform the state and make it better and better over time. To and serve then, the to yeah. serve the interests of the people, and then over time it will become socialist, which is fundamentally wrong. <laughs> it doesn't appear to be working. <laughs> it doesn't appear to be working. It hasn't worked for over a hundred years. It's not working at all. And Lenin calls this when when he calls this kind of attitude opportunism or philistinism, or he's always got a bunch of different you know terms to describe it. That these basically these people are are lame. And they suck, <laughs> and that what they're arguing for is bad. They're basically uncool. <laughs> and so, you know, the thing that's important is that you cannot reconcile class interests within a state. You can't do that. Right. So, they're opposing forces. You, there are opposing forces. So, what do you do? So, the Marxist conception of how you, how you change the state is that instead of like going in and trying to change it and tweak it, the goal is to smash it, which is the term that Marx himself uses. Um, he describes it as smashing the state. Um, and I think either the critique of the Gotha program or in a letter he wrote to August Babel, who was a socialist leader in Germany. And so what, what do revolutionary Marxists argue for? Well, we argue for a different kind of mold, which is that, in, in typical dialectical fashion, you change it, the state from being an instrument of the minority to oppress the majority to the other way around, mm -hmm. where the state becomes an instrument 
of the majority to oppress the minority, meaning the bourgeoisie, right? Right. And then as that happens, then eventually you get to a place of what's called the withering away of the state, which is that once you develop society as much as you can under this sort of semi-state of socialism, that eventually, as we talked about in our episode on Engels and Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, the idea of the governing of people is replaced with the administration of things. Right, right. And so that's the main difference between revolutionary Marxists, today what we would call Marxist-Leninists or Marxist-Leninist-Maoists, from social democrats, democratic socialists, and to a greater or less extent anarchists, because the state revolution is not only critical of democratic socialists or reform socialists, it's also critical of anarchism in the sense that the argument is made that, that, and this is probably something you can comment on better than me, um, but basically the argument is made that the problem that anarchists face is that they don't understand that, that, that um, the state does not really, is not really set up by uh, it does not really have control over material forces. It's actually the other way around, that the material forces control the state. And so okay. the other thing, too, is that essentially the argument you've probably heard a bunch of times that you might seem like a straw man, and I'd like to hear your response to it, <laughs> which is um, uh, that with anarchism, it's basically we're going to get rid of the state, but then what do you do afterward? And and that's kind of the real issue. Yeah, yeah. And so – with with this particular book, what what kind of unites Marxist-Leninists like myself and anarchists is the idea that we wish to see the abolition of the state. Yeah. The difference is is that we do it by different means. There's, I think, like uh, there's two two kind of sides to uh, the agreement between Levin, Lenin and anarchists. Right. First is I think uh, Lenin, like he says. Uh, the the state currently is a tool for the bourgeoisie to oppress the majority and exploit uh, labor. Anarchists agree with that 100%. <laughs> so then uh, also both don't want the state. So we're on sa- the same team on the front end and on the back end. <laughs> it's this middle stuff that we get, we, we get separated on. Yes. And that's really the distinction that comes up within the book. So one of the criticisms that Engels had of anarchists um, at Lenin articulated in State Revolution is this idea of you're, you're changing the form, but not the substance. So, for example, um, Lenin brings up a specific example about how, well, we'll no longer have like authorities. We will no longer have like governing bodies we will have commissions or something like that. And Lenin basically, and Engels makes the point and Lenin sort of echoes it, which is regardless of whether or not you change the name of something, it's still governance. And so you have to articulate the fact that regardless of whatever you call it, you're still setting up something that rec- that is to a certain extent a state. And that I think is a particular um you know, issue that I've always had is that it's like you can rename shit, but ultimately it's still, you're still having authority. There's still some level of governance. So what is it, what is it, what does it really mean in, 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 in substance to change something? And that's, uh, I think that's a fair comment or like a fair perspective because one of the many things that we as anarchists say is that, uh, elimination of the government 
does not mean the elimination of governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still will have a kind of governance, uh, the, the goal of which is to have it m- more from the people than from a ruling class, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, there's, there's volumes written on how we, how that will look. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, 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 and that's kind of, and one of them is what we're talking about now. So it's like the thing it's, so what, so what does a revolution look like? And ultimately what a revolution looks like is, like I said, it's that violent and it is violent. I mean, revolutions are violent. Like this yeah. idea that you can have a nonviolent revolution is absurd. Um, you know, as Mao said, re- revolutions are not birthday parties. It is right. the violent suppression of one class by another, right? So the the thing that's and this is this is the sort of revolutionary spirit of Marx and Engels that the sort of bourgeois um, and social democratic obscurantists of socialism have done to Marxism uh, in Lenin's eyes and in mine too. Which is that this idea that if you 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 cannot reform this stuff, and we've talked about this right. ad nauseum, that like there needs to be a break. But yeah, with yeah. but with Lenin, what does that break look like? So the break looks like this. Essentially, what happens is that you replace the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, which is what we live under, even if it's a fully democratic society. Like, and Marx and Engels and, and then Lenin basically argue that. Even if you have like a democratic republic, it's still a bourgeois state. It's the best form right, of a bourgeois right. state, but it's still a bourgeois state regardless. The same property relations still exist. The same incentives still exist for capitalism. And you cannot, you cannot just slowly transform it over time. That's not how it works. So there has to be a break. And the one example that unites Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and it's a, it takes up a huge part of this book, is the Paris Commune. Okay. Which is an incredibly important event that happened in 1871. Um, it was around the time of the Franco-Prussian War, which was when Germany was fighting France for territory. Germany would ultimately win um, the Franco-Prussian War and unite what would become known later as Germany proper. Before 1871, Germany had been sort of small sections of different things, particularly Prussia and other places. Right, right. So the communards who take over parts of Paris in 1871 and set up a workers' government is the first time really in the history of the modern world where a propertyless citizenry took over a part of a propertied society, meaning Paris. Mm. And what made the commune important, even though it only lasted for a few months, its importance cannot be underscored, cannot be understated in the sense that it gave us a partial blueprint for how to carry this out. Right. And so what were some of the characteristics of the commune? One was that they had a very different governing structure than most states in the sense that they had a working body. It was an actually working governing body rather than a more passive one that you would have in sort of bourgeois states. So the legislative and the executive were the same thing, mm. um, which is something that would eventually become the case in the Soviet Union and then also now in China. They have that structure is very much in place where you don't have like a Congress and then you have like a president and then they kind of have to hash things out. No, they're all in one the same and they work in tandem. 
And so those who, who create the laws also carry them out. There's a certain elegance to that, that that I think works quite nicely. The other thing about government officials is they stop being professionals in the sense that these people make these their careers. So there are very specific reforms that are instituted within the commune that Lenin calls for in his own revolution, which is the um, which is the uh, lowering of all work wages to what they call workmen's wages. Okay. So m- basically making all people who work within the government make the wage of a working person. So instead of them making, you know, I think was it $180,000 a year, which is what a U.S. congressperson makes. Right. They would make something like $55,000, which is the average American income. And they um, might take this so a little more seriously. That's one thing. <laughs> the other component about officials is they are subject to recall at any time, which uh, is a super important point. Because, is, yeah. Yeah. And then the third, which relates to this, is that instead of having like a standing military, you have an armed proletariat. So you move away from having like this centralized army to having a um, a broad coalition of working people who actually enforce the governance structure of the society. What this does is it does away with a lot of the excesses of the military system. When you put the 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 enforcement of the society within the hands of the people who live in it, i.e., the working people the incentives are better than because they would more likely to not use deadly force unnecessarily. They would probably be more likely to. And the other thing too, is that they're also going to, if they are going to use force, they're not going to use the force against working people. Generally, they're going to be using it against the bourgeoisie, which is the point. Right. And what Lenin ultimately calls this is the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is a term that often gets, I think, unfairly maligned and misunderstood. (laughs) So what did Marx mean by the dictatorship of the proletariat? Well, basically it just means the governance of the proletariat. Dictatorship is just an unfortunate um, translation. <laughs> right. But it really does mean something quite important, which is that you do away with the sort of parliamentary system that has existed in most modern societies, and you replace it with this sort of revolutionary dictatorship of the working people, where right. the governance structure is more streamlined and it's also more um, receptive to the needs of the people. So that's generally sort of the broad outline of what that looks like. And one section of the book that Lenin writes about that's super important to the discussion is also um, Marx's critique of the Gotha program, which we will talk about, I think, in a future episode. Because the critique of the Gotha program, while being only a few pages, is very, very important to the understanding of Marx's view of the state, and especially in its relationship to Lenin. So the critique of the Gotha program, um, in that Marx writes about different stages of communism. So you have a higher, you have the lower stage and the higher stage of communism. The lower stage of communism is what you would call socialism. It's a semi-state that exists between capitalism and communism. And this in-between status is where you have the dictatorship of proletariat. It's where you actually have a government that instead of oppressing the working people for the benefit of the rich or the bourgeois, the ones who own capital, it's the other way around where the working people use the force against the bourgeois. And there's a reason for doing that, which is that if you do not enforce some kind of authority over the bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie will win. 
So yeah. you have yeah. to make sure that they don't win. And the way you do that is by creating a system, a state, a worker state, um, the dictatorship of the proletariat, that would actually carry out the business of the people, the business of the proletariat, so as to not um, undermine the goals of the revolution. So those are sort of the, the kind of the broad um, overview of that, that kind of idea. The other thing that's important too is just like, like just to reiterate like the importance of the Paris Commune. Because mm-hmm. before the Russian Revolution, which became the er example of, of proletarian revolution from 1917 until today, largely, with the exception of the, the Chinese Revolution 1949, um, the commune was the only one they had. It was the only one that that, that would that, right. that ever really happened. It was the only one that ever had kind of lasting power in the sense that it lasted for a few months and it left an influence. And Marx wrote a lot about it, um, and then Lenin wrote about it. So the commune had those sort of attributes of what we would call the dictatorship of the proletariat, the semi-state of socialism. And then over time, what happens is that you build a society where the means of production are owned collectively by the society and that you have enough production and you have enough equitable distribution that you no longer have to truly enforce these certain rules because there's this predicating idea that eventually over time, people will, their priorities will change under the system. And that's, yeah. Like in the same way that, uh, Currently, capitalist structure seems to be the way that everybody functions because that's the society we've all lived in, uh, a, a socialist society where uh, the people are in control of everything would be the one that everybody's been raised in. So that's the way that they will think. Exactly. Exactly. And so a cultural shift happens as a result of the changing of the modes of production. But again, what's really important here. And why it's important that we, um, you know, it, like I'm trying to think, um, I'm trying to trying to figure out a great uh, quote here to sort of share with you. So, um, so what does it mean by the withering away of the state, which is something that is brought up a lot? It was we discussed it when we discussed Engels, and we're going to kind of discuss it tonight. This is kind of I think the fundamental difference between Marxists and anarchists. Mm. Is that Marxists sort of have a different, we have a more, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it and being pithy, we just have much more of a dialectical approach, which is that you, 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 you know, you sort of turn it on its head and then, and then as you turn it on its head, you know, quantity changes into quality and things fundamentally change over time. Now there's a critique of that, which is that you could say, well, isn't that what the reformists were doing? That like they thought, well, over time, you, if you elected enough people to parliament over time, it would become this. That's a critique of it. But the problem is, is that that happens under a bourgeois state. The withering of the way of the state happens under a proletarian state. It happens under the dictatorship of the proletariat. It's a very different set of circumstances. So what I'm going to read from now is from a section where he talks about what the withering of the state kind of looks like. Okay. So we, the workers, shall organize large-scale production on the basis of what capitalism has already created, relying on our own experiences as workers, establishing strict iron discipline backed up by the state power of the armed workers. Again, armed workers, not centralized force. 
We shall reduce the role of state officials to that of simply carrying out our instructions as responsible, revocable, modestly paid foremen and accountants, of course, with the aid of technicians of all sorts, types, and degrees. This is our proletarian task. This is what we can and must start with in accomplishing the proletarian revolution. Such a beginning, on the basis of large-scale production, will of itself lead to the gradual withering away of all bureaucracy, to the gradual creation of an order, an order without inverted commas, that means like quote marks. Mm-hmm. Um, an order bearing no similarity to wage slavery, an order which the function, an order under which the functions of control and accounting becoming more and more simple will be performed by each in turn and will then become a habit and will finally die out as the special functions of a special section of the population. The goal in that passage is to talk about how if you spread out enough of the governance of a society to everyone, then you no longer have to have a state because exactly. everyone's kind of doing it. <laughs> yep. Yep. And so they kind of, it, it, uh, Lenin compares it to the post office, which I think okay. is actually a good example. You know, to organize the whole economy on the lines of the postal service so that the technicians, foremen, and accountants, as well as all officials, shall receive salaries no higher than a workman's wage, as I discussed earlier, all under the control and leadership of the armed proletariat. This is our immediate aim. This is the state, and this is the economic foundation we need. This was this is what will bring about the abolition of parliamentary parliamentarism, parli, parliamentarism. There we go, and the <laughs> preservation of, repre, of representative institutions. This is what will rid the laboring classes of the bourgeoisie's prostitution of these institutions. So I think that the the, the contention has always been, I think, like I said, we've discussed between anarchists and Marxists about like, well, what is, what is the ending of the state really look like? Right. And so I think, or, uh, on some level it's when is there an ending of the state? Exactly. When is there an ending of the state? And I think for Marxists, it's the, the state ends when we reach the higher stage of communism. When you get to a place where the, 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 the means of production have so have, have been so multiplied so as to meet the needs of our people and that the administration itself is so perfectly balanced between the citizenry that there is no longer a need for a centralized state to mm-hmm. carry out any of it because everyone does it together collectively and there's no need for it anymore. That's, yeah. that's, it's a, it's a, um, I think, Whereas anarchists, and again, I'm not one, so I could be wrong and correct me if I am, but basically my anarchists make the argument of, well, we're just going to, you know, we're going to get rid of this state right now. We're not going to create a dictatorship of the proletariat. We're going to create something else, which is similar in form, but kind of different in in substance. And um, I'm not really sure what that perspective is. So, yeah, I mean, if you got, uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. That that's pretty solid uh, explanation of it. It's the thing with anarchists is that there's so many different types of anarchists that that at this point, like we have uh, a bunch of different people saying, well, when we destroy the state, then we'll do this or we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll put in councils or we'll pull it in, you know, and, and those councils will be comprised of the proletariat, like stuff like that. Like it, it really doesn't sound like uh, that far off from what Lenin was calling a socialist state, except uh, probably less centralized, right? Yes. And so, 
you you teed me up perfectly <laughs> for what I was going to read next, which is a section about the difference between Marxists and anarchists in discussing the nature of centralization. Yeah. So one of the uh, key leaders of the anarchist movement in Marxist time was a guy named Proudhon. Right. Uh, Pierre Proudhon. And so in this section, Lenin kind of lays out the difference between Marx and Proudhon. So Marx agreed with Proudhon in that they both stood for the smashing of the modern state machine. Neither the opportunists nor the Kautskyites, which are like democratic socialists, okay. wish to see the similarity of views on this point between Marxism and anarchism, both Proudhon and Bakunin, because this is where they have departed from Marxism. <laughs> so this is, this is where, like, um, I don't know how to describe <laughs> it, like, like, Lenin is kind of giving he's sort of damning the anarchists with faint praise by saying like we have differences in tactics but at least we agree on this old larger goal of getting rid of the bourgeois state of this right. modern state machine which these fucking revisionists over here won't want <laughs> don't have the balls to do right <laughs> right so that's a really important point this is like yeah. i think this is where like left unity can happen in some capacity in the sense that like we both agree on the smashing of the state yeah however Marx disagreed both, both with Proudhon and Bakunin, Mikhail Bakunin, who was another anarchist leader, um, precisely on the question of federalism, not to mention the dictatorship mm. of the proletariat. Federalism as a principle follows logically from the petty bourgeois views of anarchism. Marx was a centralist. There is no departure whatever from centralism in his observations just quoted. I'm referring to sections of the Gotha program and other things. Right. Only those who are imbued with the Philistine superstitious belief in the state can make the destruction of the bourgeois state machine uh, in the state. In, oh, sorry. Only those who are imbued with the Philistine superstitious belief in the state can mistake the destruction of the bourgeois state machine for the destruction of centralism. So this is a key difference between, I think, Marxists and anarchists yeah. is that we do believe in a certain degree of centralism. Um, particularly right. what Marx, uh, what, what is called in Leninism, democratic centralism. Um, democratic centralism is the policy wherein you have, you know, um, uh, vigorous debate within. So vigorous debate within, unity outside, or unity without. So what does that mean? So in democratic centralism, um, which uh, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which I'm a part of, is a democratic centralist organization. Okay. Um, Democratic centralism is this idea that let's say you're proposing a measure and you have a meeting and everybody vigorously debates that within the meeting itself. And then a democratic vote is, is made about whether or not we do particular proposal. And uh, once the decision is made, everyone is bound to that decision. And we all carry out that decision as if we all agreed on it because if you don't, then what happens is you lead to factionalism. And with factionalism leads to the sort of, uh, the sort of gradual, um, destruction of a unified policy that could actually carry out the means of a revolution or carry out the means of a worker state. I very much compare it to like a cookie and milk. Like if you, you know, if you keep a cookie and milk for so long, then the, the, the cookie kind of dissolves and then becomes nothing. Right. If you have so much debate, if you have so much debate and discussion outside of the meeting, when a unified policy, a central policy should go together, then nothing can get done. And ultimately nothing happens. And right. ultimately your whole goals fall apart. 
So what, so the, so when we say that like, we'll have the armed proletariat, the armed proletariat are centralized, but only in as much as they carry out the broader goals of the revolution as determined democratically by the, the, um, the governing bodies, whether they be workers' councils or they be Soviets, which is what they were in the Soviet Union. Soviets meaning council. They were workers' councils. So what would happen is the workers' councils would vote, they would decide, and then the armed proletariat would carry out the, the, um, the rule of the workers' councils. Again, that's, I think, the fundamental difference of, of some of this, is that I think we, we as Marxists, we have a much more centralized model. And the reason for that in my opinion, at least, in the lower stage of communism, which is socialism, which is the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Is that before that, we have the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And how is the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie effective? Because it was centralized, right? <laughs> so you, right, you, you right. it was because it was able to have that level of centralization to be successful. It was able to, yeah. to carry out its goals. It built its power that it way. It built its power that way. We do, this, we do the same level of centralization, or sometimes less, sometimes more, but it's in service of the proletariat. Right, That's right. the fundamental difference. Is it's the problem? I think the big difference is that the only as Marxists, we always have to ask for whom, to whom. Those two questions are very important. So when we just talk about like the state as like an abstract, mm-hmm. or we talk about power in the abstract or authority in the abstract, it doesn't really right. mean anything. Authority for whom, to do what, for whom. Right. Like, like to do what? And so that's, I think, the fundamental difference. And so we, agree, like I said, long story short, like we agree <laughs> on ends. We just disagree on means and how that works out. Yeah. And even even some of the means, like from the sounds of it, aren't that different, actually. It's just that uh, there's like a couple little snags on one side or the other that are like, well, I don't like that necessarily. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Which of course uh, ended up with people killing each other over it, but whatever, you know. <laughs> right, right. And, and the thing is, is that, and I can't remember. I need to find the quote because it's really important. I, I hope I can find it by searching, because um, because I'm like super OCD, so like the, these these editions are like out of print because like the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Right. Sad tear. Um, but. So I don't make markers or highlights or anything in these books because they're kind of important. Fair. So, I have, so I have PDF versions that I highlight and make notes in. So I'm going through. <laughs> okay, this is what I wanted. This is what I wanted to find. Um, I think this is it. Hold on. One of the things you'll see a lot in the state revolution is the talk of utopianism and that Marxists are not utopians, which is true. We Marxists, especially Marxists okay. on this, we are not utopians. So. Um, so here's what Lenin writes about this. Um, lastly, only communism makes the state absolutely unnecessary for there is nobody to be suppressed. Nobody in the sense of a class of a systematic struggle against a definite section of the population. We are not utopians and do not in the least deny the possibility and inevitability of excesses on the part of individual persons or the need to stop such excesses. In the first place, however, no special machine, no special apparatus of suppression is needed for this. This will be done by the armed people themselves, as simply and as readily as any crowd of civilized people. 
even in modern society, interferes to put a stop to a scuffle or to prevent a woman from being assaulted. And secondly, we know that the fundamental social cause of excesses, which consists in the violation of the rules of social intercourse, is the exploitation of the people, their want and their poverty. With the removal of this chief cause, excesses will inevitably begin to wither away. We, don't, we do not know how quickly and in what succession, but we, do do, but we do know they will wither away. With their withering away, the state will also wither away. I mean, okay, so maybe it's just because my brain, uh, uh, I, I don't, I can't remember details, but I can remember concepts generally, right? I don't know exact writings of uh, uh, anarchists uh, necessarily word by word, but that sounds an awful lot like the ideas that, <laughs> that say, even utopian anarchists believe it. Yeah, you know, this sounds exactly like the stuff that I've been reading. (laughs) So this is this is so the fundamental difference is, and the reason why Lenin makes a distinction between the what we are what we advocate for in terms of revolution and how communism looks versus other anarchists is that in 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 Lenin's opinion there's an economic basis for it. So like the issue that that Lenin had. And again, the thing is, like, anarchism yeah, I mean, is much yeah. more sophisticated today, yeah. in my opinion, than I think it was, like, 100 years ago. I think you're right. <laughs> um, and because I think, in many ways, the anarchists have taken the Marxist critiques to heart and have tried to articulate them. Yeah. So what I mean by that, what I'm about to say, and again, if this sounds like a straw man, stop me. I'm not trying to do that. But basically, like, the the um, the anarchists don't really think about, like, okay – well, if we do do away with the state, like, okay, well, what's the economic basis of how we get to communism and that there are stages of development and then you go through certain stages of development to get to other places. Like there's, and that's, I think the fundamental difference is that yeah. like, I think for anarchists, like the state, for some anarchists, like the state is like the be all end all thing that you have to stop because it sets the tone for everything else. Whereas Marxists, we think, no, 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 no. The state is nothing more than a manifestation of economic forces. It's a manifestation of class struggle. That's why the state exists. It would not exist otherwise. And if you build a society and you develop a society as such, where where you get to a place of the elimination of classes generally, then those class divisions, those class conflicts no longer exist and the need for the state no longer exists. It's, it's basically, it's, it's, the you change so much in 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 form that eventually it changes in substance. That's I think the difference. But it does sound very anarchistic, and I know people have argued <laughs> that Peter Kropotkin had a lot of influence on Lenin, and I'm not Could sure be. about that. But we'll learn that more when we talk about Kropotkin, which we sure. will in next year because we're going to do two of his books yep. um, back to back. We're going to do a whole section on Kropotkin and then responses to anarchism. But it's yeah. entirely possible that my perspective on anarchism and Marxism uh, has been influenced by multiple sources and, <laughs> and I'm creating my own kind of idea about what I've he- read and heard, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. you know, because I do think of, uh, I think that many anarchists do in fact uh, not have an economic basis for their uh, beliefs. But I think that they also have uh, what might be considered a sociological 
basis for mm-hmm. their ideas uh, because there's evidence that um, people support each other in times of crisis and there's, you know, t- stuff like that. It doesn't have that same economic science necessarily to it, but yeah. it does have like kind of a sociological basis. And yeah, and I think that's a methodological difference that's worth um, exploring for sure. For sure. Um, because I think it's important. And Marx was certainly influential in sociology as well. Yeah. Um, because not everything is solely economic determinism. It's as Marx written, as Marx wrote, you know, um, and as other writers wrote, that's a bastardization of Marxism. But right. there's also the ideological components, um, and the structural components. The other quote I wanted to do that I wanted to read that's actually right above the one that we, I think we did before. Um, see, this but, is why, though, this is why when I see a Lenin quote, I never dislike it. Like, it's always, <laughs> they're always good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, like, um, this is a good one. So, this is the one I actually wanted to read, but it's it's great because it kind of sums up the importance of why revolutions are often messy. And sometimes they don't always turn out the way that you plan because, again, things might go haywire. Things might change based on circumstances. Um, They almost certainly will. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's like the Marxist will never say this, or at least Marxist Leninists may never say this. But it's like the Marxist Marxism has like a lot of built in pragmatism to it that people don't really see off the bat. Because they just assume that us Marxists or anarchists were all kind of the same. And it's like, that's kind of true in some ways. But in other ways, I think we're a bit more, I don't want to say realistic, but I think we have a sense of like pragmatism. I mean, we would call it dialectical thinking, but generally it's kind of pragmatism. But the quote that a lot of people know and the one that I wanted to to read in relation to utopianism is this one. This is one of the quotes that I read when I read State Revolution the first time because I've read it about two or three times now, is the quote that like, this is the thing I'm like, this makes sense. This is what makes me what I am. So he says, we are not utopians. We do not dream of dispensing at once with all administration, with all subordination. These anarchist dreams based upon incomprehension of the task of the proletarian dictatorship are totally alien to Marxism. And as a matter of fact, serve only to postpone the socialist revolution until people are different. No, We want the social revolution with people as they are now, with people who cannot dispense with subordination control and form in an accountants. So like this is really important here, which is that any new state that you set up or any new governance structure, whatever you want to call it, is going to have the the birthmarks of the old, as Marx said, right? right. There are going to be elements of our proletarian dictatorship, of our worker state or whatever you want to call it. They're going to have elements of capitalism in it. There are going to be some components of bourgeois law, as Lenin articulates. There are going to be some components of private property that Lenin articulates. These are all transitional to get to other stuff. So it's evolutionary as well as revolutionary. And I like the idea of just articulating um, the fact like we want it with people as they are now. We acknowledge people's flaws now Mm -hmm. and we still seek to do this. And it's precisely – that we seek to do it now, that we that it requires some levels of administration and subordination, but it's yeah. done with full knowledge of the democratic spirit of a worker state, meaning that the the authority is the working people themselves. 
And that very much like in, a, in the lower stage of communism or socialism, if there are unequal components to that society, they are democratically decided upon and are, are within reasonable limits. Like, so for example, in the critique of the Gotham program, Marx talks about how, you know, some people are going to have children and some people aren't. Some people may be more physically capable and some may be not. Yeah. Some may more be intellectually capable and others may not. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes you you might do more work than others. So somebody might be compensated differently because of their circumstances. That does not necessarily mean that people's needs are not met, right. but that their compensation is different based upon the fact that their circumstances are different. Their needs are different. Their needs yeah. are different. This yeah. is where you get the phrase from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Yeah. That's super important. Yeah. And it's it's the thing about when when you hear moronic right-wingers talk about how Marxists want to make everybody equal. It's like, you can't, one, you can't fucking do that. Yeah, but that's and, literally and not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. The yeah. goal is to create, you know, the goal is not just pure equality for equality's sake. That's bourgeois liberal thinking. Yeah. The goal is liberation. That's the difference. Yeah. Equality, a liberation goes far beyond whatever equality is. Because you can have equality under the law and it mean almost nothing, which is what it is in bourgeois parliamentary systems like we have in the United States and Canada and otherwise. We have all kinds of legal equality. It means jack shit. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's right. because if you have a system in which legal equality is only just on paper and you don't build a society that actually advocates towards real liberation, i.e. making a society where people's needs are met, yeah. And that there are no longer these vast chasms of difference because of the capitalist system, because of the, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, because of the very small amount of people who control everything else. Yeah. And so it's, it's just unfathomable to me that people make that argument, but it's because it's not true, you know, and we're not, and, it's, and people say, oh, well, then Marx advocates inequality. It's like, no. <laughs> you, it's not what you're getting at, like you know. Because yeah, here's the thing: it. <laughs> once you get to communism, these distinctions don't matter anymore. Yeah. Like they don't, because yeah. ultimately you've built a society where people's needs are met, where people are able to flourish in their what 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 Marx called its species being, as he called it, you know, your 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 life. Yep, and. You no longer have to worry about those distinctions because they don't fucking matter anymore. And because they don't fucking matter anymore, you don't have to have a state to enforce those differences anymore, which is why it goes away. So, yeah, that's that was a bit of a rant. But, like, I know you had something you wanted to say. Go for it. Uh, no, I just uh, I think uh, a lot of Lenin, it seems very compatible with my personal uh, view of things. Uh, I just uh, I think even. Uh, some of the stuff that I've read about anarchism and uh, for example, how it would deal with uh, the criminal element that exists after a revolution, because you're still going to have people with the same mentality uh, as they had before the revolution. Right? Yes. So you're going to have to deal with that in some way. And, and, and even anarchists have written that uh, we will need some type of uh, prisons because banishment isn't a thing that will, is effective in the modern age and, and stuff like that. Like, like I think you, you mentioned that uh, Marxist Leninists are, uh, they often are very pragmatic. And I think that that's kind of the, the thing with like 
a good anarchist is very pragmatic as well. And we can incorporate new ideas and mm -hmm. uh, new uh, information into our worldview. Yeah. The thing that's really important too is to acknowledge the fact that this notion of the withering away of the state is something that like people like, well, we want an answer now. Like, when is it going away? And it's like, <laughs> right, right. You know, it's, it's kind of like the Potter Stewart quote about, about pornography. Like you'll know it when you see it. Like, I think, I think there's a, there's a, a truth to the fact that over time, as, you know, Engels called it, you know, the governance of people replaced with the administration of things, um, is that you no longer need the state as it is. There will be a governance structure of some kind. Right. Obviously, because even in the higher stage of communism, um, where we You're have still going to have to decide where to build the road or you know, when to repair it. <laughs> there will be discussions. There will be disputes. Yeah. And for as much as I wish it wasn't the case, I think there are still going to be people who will do bad things. Yeah. Um, I think that there will still be people who murder and, and rape and, and steal. I still think those are things that will happen. Um, but yeah. the difference is, is that instead of using an extremely oppressive state apparatus um, to achieve the ends of creating more social harmony, we will have developed a society of communism wherein these disputes are handled by the people for the people instead yeah. of by this sort of alien fucking apparatus that no one has real authority over. Like a Supreme Court that has yeah. <laughs> lifetime I mean, appointments. I mean, in the United States of America, a country of 340 million people, nine people, right. nine, who were unelected and appointed for life, get to decide massive amounts of shit for people. That's absurd, right? Think about the United States government is so shitty for multiple reasons. I mean, God, you know, give me a week. I won't even be that. <laughs> yeah. But like, um, but one of the things that's shitty about the way the U.S. government is structured is the checks and balances part. Right. So this is something they sort of pitch to you when you're a kid in civics classes as a virtue. I don't think it's a virtue at all. I think it's built in to make the government not work, to not function. It, um, it sure seems that way. <laughs> and if you look at the history of the United States, that's exactly the case. Like the reason that there were so many disputes in the early early years of the Republic and a lot of what led to the Civil War was this clashing between what the Congress wanted versus what the president wanted versus what the, con what the Supreme Court wanted. Yeah. And the, the whole idea itself of judicial review was largely invented whole cloth by Justice Marshall. So Justice John Marshall, who was the first Supreme Court Chief Justice Supreme Court. And it was in an incredibly important case called Marbury v. Madison. Okay. And so judicial review in and of itself is actually not in the Constitution. It's something that was created whole cloth later on. And so libertarians, who I don't necessarily agree with this interpretation. Freeman on the land. <laughs> Freeman on the land. But libertarians make the argument that like, when judicial review was created, it was created without the consent of Congress. It was created without the consent of the president. It was just done. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson, who I'm pretty sure was president when the decision of Marvie V. Madison was handed down, actually protested the mm. application of um, judicial review. So that that's the big issue with the Supreme Court in a nutshell is why, why do nine people have this much power over everything?
Yeah. You know, why does one man have this much control over everything? And obviously, like, the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China obviously have their issues. But the one thing that people don't recognize is actually how those societies were both quite centralized, but also in many ways quite decentralized. Mm. Um, and how they left a lot to the local Soviets or the local workers' councils or the local provinces and the cities. There was a lot that was left to them. But the governance structure is different where the executive, like I said, like I said earlier, the executive and the legislative are together. And you no longer have this like weird artificial delineation between, right. because here's the thing, right? The president through executive order and through new regulatory uh, um, decrees is creating law anyway. Yeah. The president and the White House, the, the executive branch of the United States already does create law. They, they say they don't, but they do. The Supreme Court does the same thing. So, these distinctions we have between the two branch, all these different branches, is arbitrary. But that, but that was the point because it was a government right. that was designed by slave owners. Like you have to understand that, like that's why the system works the way it does. It works to the benefit of capital, and specifically when it was written, to the benefit of people of slave owning capital. Yeah, so, they had yeah. they had a kind of a, a liberatory idea, but only for themselves, right? They didn't think about uh, the liberation of all people, uh, but they, though they did seem to think of themselves as representative of the masses, so then there's some things there that do apply to a lot of people, but they still definitely left out like huge swaths of the populace. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously they left out, you know, I mean, and that's where you get the, the you know, the three-fifths compromise where black people yeah. are counted as three-fifths of a person under the Constitution. And there was a very deliberate reason for that, which was that the southern states, that there were more black people in the southern states than the white people. And that if you just got rid of, if you didn't count the black people as a part of the electorate, or as a part of the citizenry to d determine the census and to determine um, uh, congressional, uh, uh, congressional districts, then the North would win every time, because the North was just more populous. And so they had to come up with the, we're going to, we're going to count black people as part of a person, but we're not going to count them as a full, full person. Right. Cause if you have, if you count them as a full person, then they have to participate within the entire system. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which actually gets me to an incredible, an important point that, um, Lenin writes about the notion of democracy. The other thing too, is that like one of the controversial aspects of state revolution is the idea of the, the d democracy withering away. So they'll, they'll talk about like, because democracy will wither away as the state will wither away. And that kind of sounds crappy at first. Like people are like, wait, I like democracy. Democracy is a good thing. But like democracy in and of itself is a product of class struggle. It's a product of these contentious forces fighting against each other within a straight structure. Right, right. When you, when you do away with the state. And everybody kind of just has a say in what goes on. And everybody has a say in what goes on. Yeah. You don't need to call it democracy anymore. The, the the point of democracy is no longer there. Yeah. I'm really, after this conversation, yeah. I'm really looking forward to Rosa Luxemburg's uh, critique of Lenin's work. <laughs> yes. Because the thing it's, you know, the thing that's important here is that the, you know, it, Luxemburg and Lenin have really two different tracks. And it's really about who leads the revolution.
I mean, that's, that's ultimately the difference is that Rosa Luxemburg believed that, and we'll get into this more when we do it next year, but Rosa Luxemburg genuinely believed that the people proper would lead the revolution. Full stop. Right. Like a, like a mass line type of situation. Yes. Whereas Lenin believed, Lenin believed that you needed what was called a vanguard, um, an ideological vanguard, a party that would help lead the people. And it's just, it's a, it's a debate of tactics. Mm-hmm. And Rosa Luxemburg's argument is that if the people are well armed in revolutionary struggle, not just with arms, but with, 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 um, but with the facts, you know, with the, the, the correct ideology, with the yeah. knowledge of Marxism, they don't need the vanguard. The vanguard becomes useless. It's not important to have the vanguard. And Lenin's whole point is that like, look, like in a country, like Russia, which was largely peasant, right? Where the vast majority of the public couldn't fucking read. Right. They you, can't you get need, the facts. They can't get the facts because they can't read them, right? So you need people to help them, to guide them towards this goal. And that's the, that's a big difference. And, and, uh, but we'll get into that more. For but sure. the thing I wanted to read was, and actually it relates to the discussion I just had about the three fifths compromise where Lenin writes, These restrictions, exceptions, exclusions, obstacles for the poor seem slight. Um, We could also, you know, include the slave in that discussion. Right. Especially in the eyes of one who has never known want himself and has never been in close contact with the oppressed classes in their mass life. And nine out of ten, if not 99 out of 100, bourgeois publicists and politicians come under this category. Mm Mm-hmm. But in their sum total, these restrictions exclude and squeeze out the poor from politics, from active participation in democracy. Mm-hmm. Marx grasped the essence of capitalist society splendidly when, in analyzing the experience of the commune, the Paris commune, he said that the oppressed in bourgeois sort of government structures, bourgeois democracies, but the, the, he asked that the oppressed are allowed once every few years to decide which particular representatives of the oppressing class shall represent and repress them in parliament. And then the other one is democracy for the vast majority of the people and suppression by force, i.e. exclusion from democracy of the exploiters and oppressors of the people. This is the change democracy undergoes during the transition from capitalism to communism. So under a proletariat, under a proletarian government, under a workers' state and the dictation of the proletariat, you actually get a flourishing and an expansion of democracy because for the first time, those who were oppressed, the workers, you know, the marginalized, yeah. they're the ones who actually have the authority over the, their oppressors, which in bourgeois mm-hmm. democracies they do not have. And so – that's I really like that too. line about uh, uh, they get to choose the representative from the re- oppressive class. <laughs> right. I mean, especially as we're going to be next year going into an election year, a, a, a congressional midterm year here in the United States. And you guys, I think, just finished up with a national election. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, um, and, and to, to kind of further underscore this, like um, just to kind of underscore my point, Mark, uh, Lenin writes – And so in capitalist society, we have a democracy that is curtailed, wretched, false, a democracy only for the rich, for the minority. The dictatorship of the proletariat, the period of transition to communism, will for the first time create democracy for the people, for the majority, along with the necessary suppression of the exploiters, of the minority. Communism alone is capable of providing really complete democracy. And the more complete it is, 
the sooner it will become unnecessary and wither away of its own accord. And so essentially under the withering away of the state, you have the withering away of democracy because democracy is imbued in every aspect of our lives. Yeah. You don't have to delineate it as democracy anymore because it's just life. Life just becomes democracy, yeah. which is kind of cool. Like that's kind of a neat concept. So every single decision that's made gets made by as many people who as want an input on that decision. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so that's the state and revolution. I want to finish up with the postscript because the postscript is kind of cool. So, this was written, like I said, in August and September of 1917. It didn't come out um, until 1918. And Lenin wrote this postscript about, um, about, uh, about a month or so after, or two months, almost two months after the Bolshevik Revolution okay. in October 1917. Um, so he says... Um, this pamphlet was written in August and September 1917. I had already drawn up the plan for the next, the seventh chapter, The Experience of the Russian Revolutions of 1905 to 1917. Excuse me. Apart from the title, however, I had no time to write a single line of the chapter. I was interrupted by a political crisis. The, <laughs> uh, interrupted is in quotes. Um, the eve of the October Revolution of 1917. Such an interruption can only be welcomed. But the writing of the second part of the pamphlet, The Experience of the Russian Revolutions of 1905 and 1917, will probably have to be put off for a long time. <laughs> and this yeah. is, I don't know if, if this is just, this is Lenin just giving off big dick energy. But he says here, it is more pleasant and useful to go through the, the experience of the revolution than to write about it. Which is, which is pretty badass. Um, yeah. The, yeah, I mean, it's, you write a book on revolution, you have to quit writing it because you carry one out. Pretty fucking cool. Pretty good. So, yeah. So that's the State Revolution by Lenin. There's so much more we could have talked about. We didn't really get into him shit talking Kautsky or other people very much. I kind of wanted to talk about the broad picture. But needless to say that they're opportunistic fucks and <laughs> Lenin calls them out as such. The main reason he hates Kautsky or the real break he has with Kautsky is Kautsky supports World War One, mm. um, And the Second International largely backs world war one if ever there was a war about uh bourgeoisie power yeah and imperialism <laughs> right but the problem is is that the the internationalism of the socialist movement under kautsky gave way to nationalist chauvinism mm -hmm. it gave away to nationalism and ultimately that led to a regression of the the politics of the second international and then the second international basically fell apart and was replaced by the third international under the Soviet Union. So, um, so yeah, so that's the state of revolution, um, alongside the communist manifesto. It's probably one of the most important Marxist writings. Um, I highly encourage people to check it out. And if you want to learn more about the state and revolution, there's an excellent, um, podcast, which is an audio version of an essay that was written, um, by, uh, one of our comrades in the PSL about how state and revolution changed the world or changed history or something like that. Cool. And uh, it's an excellent little podcast, like an hour or so. And you can also read it too on liberation school that kind of gives you the background of why Lenin wrote it. Some of the bigger, broader points we discussed tonight on the show and kind of its over uh, overall impact on world events and in world history and the workers' movement in general. Awesome. So I highly recommend people check that out as sort of ancillary material. 
Okay, so uh, I can't remember. What are we covering next? So next time, next time will be the first one we'll ever do two books. Oh, right, right. Uh, October. So we'll be doing October by China Mievel, which is a story of the Russian Revolution. This is a wonderful general history of the Russian Revolution, actually written by a science fiction writer, which is kind of cool. And then the other book we're going to be doing is Lenin on the Train by Catherine Marydale. Cool. um, Which is more of a bourgeois read of Lenin, but it's about his legendary train ride in uh, in April 1917. Um, One interesting fact about the painting on the cover is you see Lenin here, but behind him is Stalin. Okay. but Stalin wasn't on the Stalin wasn't on the train. <laughs> <It's> just, uh, <laughs> someone put that there. Artistic uh, <laughs> artistic license. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if it was you know out of fear or love, but they put it there. Um, but yeah, so those are the two books we'll cover next time, and um, and then you know maybe in a future episode we can do Ten Days That, that Shook the World by John Reed, which is the journalistic account written by an American journalist. It's like a day by day blow of the October revolution. Um, but, uh, but these books are are interesting. I think there's a lot of good in them. And then we'll also have some critiques of them. Some of the shortcomings I see in both of them and the next time. And then, and then we'll have like a little break where we'll do a couple just kind of one-offs. Cool. And then we're going to finish out the year talking about Mao and China. So that'll be how we'll finish out. So. Sounds good. So uh, where can people find your stuff? Uh, you can find me at justinclark.org. Um, I have officially added the podcast to my website. Awesome. So you can actually review this episode and all past episodes at justinclark.org. Um, and uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at justinclarkph for public history. And um, my article on Debs and Ingersoll, which I've talked about in the last couple episodes, will be coming out this month in the new edition of The Truth Seeker. Cool. That article will also be available on my website. Awesome. Well, that sounds all great. Uh, thanks very much for, uh, I think, a very lively discussion about Lennon. <laughs> I think so, too. And that's the thing is that, like, we're going to do a lot of this where, uh, you know, I want to I, – I always want to try in our discussions because I respect your position – is to steel man anarchism as much as possible before I provide my criticism of it. Um, Sounds good. And, and that's what we'll do next year when we do our sort of review of Kropotkin's books and then um, a anthology of book. There's a book that was published by the Soviet Union that's a collection of different writings from Marx, Engels, and Lenin on anarchism, and we'll, we'll review that book too. Cool. Um, specifically, um, Lenin uh, Engels' essay that's really important called On Authority, which... Lenin okay. talks about it length in State and Revolution. So this was a lot. We had to cover a lot tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. That's all, folks. Thanks for watching and or listening. Uh, remember to share this show with your friends and on the social media site that you use the most. I want to say thank you again to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated and it helps me spend more time on this and my other projects when I'm not at work so that I don't have to work as many gig hours. Uh, If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical lefty. If you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app of choice or one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser would be great. If you want to find more from me, then you can check out the show notes 
or check my link tree. That's linktr.ee slash skeptical Corey. You can find all my social media stuff there, as well as links to my other shows, which include Skeptarchy, which is a panel show I do with some very smart people, uh, For Many People's Strength, which is a show about Saskatchewan politics, and a new project I'm involved in that's called the Atheist Humanist Leftist Revolutionaries with my friend Damien Marie at Hope. My Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty, and my Facebook page is at, is the Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. Or you can send me a friend request, which is uh, facebook.com slash cjbrainstorm. I accept most friend requests. You can also email me at mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com. And if you want to be a guest on the show or know someone I should reach out to, then feel free to let me know. You can book interviews in my available time slots on my Calendly, which you can find on my link tree. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. And let's just all try to be kind to other leftists and to all people. And even if we think they're wrong, uh, the battle that we are fighting is an uphill one and has many obstacles. And we will need all the comments we can get. Ah!